Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is uh, Season 5, Episode 20, um, back after a, a couple of week break. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a second. But my name is Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, released last year uh, the, in The Jesus-Centered Life, the book that this podcast was sort of birthed out of. Uh, that's from a few years ago. And I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible which uh, you could say is, is the Bible of the podcast <laughs> in, in, a, in every way you can slice that. So it's good to be back with you. Uh, you know, uh, I, I miss the pigs. So here we are in the sty back together again. So uh, for those of you who have joined our pigs page, our private Facebook page, for those who are listeners of this podcast and want more than just listening, you want to interact and ask questions and dialogue and support one another and and challenge one another. Uh, we have a private uh, Facebook page called The Pigs, and the name of it comes from a chapter in The Jesus-Centered Life. I think the name of the chapter is Be the Pig. It comes from a, a story a good friend of mine once told me about his daughter, who was a, a waitress at the number two rated restaurant in the world, the French Laundry near San Francisco. And uh, if you're a waiter or waitress at this restaurant, you're making a six-figure income. Not right now, obviously. But uh, in, this is the plum of the plum jobs if you're a waiter or a waitress. And uh, the staff, the, the, the leadership and ownership of the restaurant has very high standards for customer service. And every year they give an award to the waiter or waitress who has exemplified those high standards. And my friend's daughter won it one year. And I thought, oh my gosh, what did she win? And I asked my friend and he said, well, she won a t-shirt. <laughs> I thought, what? But it was a very coveted t-shirt. It had a picture of a pig on the front of the t-shirt and it said, be the pig underneath it. And I said, uh, Bob, I don't get it. What does that mean? And he said, well, what the, what the owners mean by that is that the chicken gives up something for breakfast, gives up the egg for the breakfast, but the pig gives everything. So be the pig meant that the pig or the waiter or waitress had given their all to serving their customers. And so to me, that is the sort of the definition of a disciple, somebody who can't help themselves. They want to give their all to Jesus because they've been so captured and conquered by his beauty. So that's why the Pigs page got its name. And we'll have a link to this podcast episode, as we always do, to join the page if you want to. Um, but I posted on that page just this last week um, about a big change in my life. Um, so. I have worked for group publishing for 33 years. I started when I was 26 years old. I can't even believe it. And along that way, I've been executive editor of Group Magazine, which is the world's most popular youth ministry magazine for many decades, and uh, headed up our youth ministry resourcing efforts there. And in the last 10 years, have transitioned over to helping uh, the area of our organization that produces things like the Jesus-Centered Bible and my book, The Jesus-Centered Life, uh, th those, that area is what you call the consumer area, which is direct to just anybody. So I've been deeply involved in that for the last decade as well. And uh, uh, the, the company uh, 
uh, over the years, because of our success in various areas, became uh, huge in the Vacation Bible School arena. The Vacation Bible School curriculum that we produce every year is the world's most popular, and uh, it became a huge part of the revenue of our company. And, and uh, because of uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic restrictions that have been placed um, on us because of that, uh, about 70% of churches this summer are not going to do any VBS. And as a result, that our company took an enormous hit, one which uh, we will not be able to recover from until next year, when next year's VBS, uh, we hope and pray, will be launched again. And because of that, there, there, there had to be uh, some significant staff cuts from group. And I was one of those. Um, so that, that youth ministry area, um, we're just not able to support new projects going forward. So they're simply going to continue to support and fuel the existing projects that have already been started, but in the future, we won't be starting anything new, which means I don't have a role There's, there, uh, unless I went through radical transformation and, and they, they felt like, uh, and, I, and I agree with them, that this was the best thing to happen. Nevertheless, a tremendous shock, of course, in the midst of these pandemic restrictions, now for the first time in three decades, I am looking for what's next for me. So, uh, the, and in the middle of that, in the middle of my own personal uh, sort of transition and turmoil and grief and shock and all of it, in, in the middle of all of that, uh, uh, and the pandemic restrictions that we're under, and in our case, because my wife is immune compromised, um, we're, we're at DEFCON 10 with those pandemic restrictions because if she got the virus, it would be dire for her. So in the middle of all that, we, um, we now have a new crisis and emergency emerging in our culture over uh, the on-screen murder of George Floyd, which is, I, I almost can't watch it, but I, I know I must watch it. And so as heartbreaking and as wrenching as this is, and then the resulting protest and some aspect of that protest, people uh, taking advantage of it and committing acts of violence in the midst of it. We're in turmoil right now. We have a lot of pent up um, uh, emotion, grief, pain, uncertainty, all of the little micro world that I live in right now it's really a macro world and all of that tension building up and then this sort of, uh, this tragic and horrific act um, lights the match to something that has been uh, boiling to the surface for a long time. But th this, this confluence of circumstances has now uh, risen it to something that everyone must now deal with, um, no matter who you are. And, um, so, and so I've been thinking about this and have had people ask me about this. Well, what was Jesus's relationship to racism? Um, we, we know as followers of Jesus, just as a default setting, racism is, is abject sin and is contrary in every way to the heart of Jesus. Um, we know that by, in a default way, and yet it persists in our culture. And the question is why? 
And why, why do some of those who follow Jesus persist in racist attitudes and racist practices? How is that even possible when you're following Jesus, whose heart detests racism? So I've had friends ask me about, well, uh, I wish you would record a podcast about Jesus and racism. So I'm going to give it a shot. Um, this isn't going to be as long as a normal podcast. Uh, I'm going to narrowly focus in on this issue and, and uh, take a shot at exploring how Jesus dealt with this uh, in, incredible darkness uh, when he experienced it himself. So, so uh, this, this episode is called Jesus and Racism. And um, I hope that it uh, sparks thought and even more than that, um, sparks action in, in all of us. So, so um, I wanted to start out though by um, having you listen to a uh, Instagram video that my daughter Emma, who's 17, actually found. It, it brought her to tears watching this and then I asked her to send it to me. Uh, um, and I just want to set this up a little bit. It's a short, about 30 second clip it's not real easy to hear this uh, because there's a, uh, you know, torrential thunderstorm going on in the background. But essentially what, what you're going to hear, um, and we'll put a link to this so that you can see this uh, for yourself, what you're going to hear are the entire membership of a, of a Houston, Texas church that uh, is a mostly white church kneeling in a park uh, park enclosure with the thunderstorm going on around them, kneeling in front of the entire membership of a small African-American church. And th the whole of the white church kneeling in front of the standing members of a black church in Houston, Texas. And there's either the, a spokesman or the pastor of the mostly white church. You'll hear him speaking, but again, they're all kneeling on the concrete in front of this small congregation of black church. So let's go ahead and listen to this. And because it's hard to hear, I will go back over what's been said in here. So let's go ahead and listen. <laughs> Again, hard to hear, but let me just explain to you the scene. Um, white church kneeling in front of small black congregation. And he starts out, uh, the pastor starts out by uh, talking about uh, the need for healing and uh, the need for humility. And that's why they're kneeling. And then he asks forgiveness directly for a history of not only individual racism, but systemic racism. And as he begins to pray that, um, the members of the black congregation just spontaneously start weeping um, and groaning. Um, you can tell that this pent up, tremendous grief and pain 
is getting touched on in this moment. And what they're looking at is several hundred uh, mostly white people from this church in front of them, all kneeling on the concrete in a thunderstorm. Um, it's a it's a radical act of humility and forgiveness. And of course, it doesn't solve or fix the endemic issues. That solving and fixing has to translate into action. But what is important is none of this will stop until the hearts have been changed. Until um, as Nick, as what happened to Nicodemus, until we are born over again with a heart that looks like Jesus's heart, this won't stop. And what they're, what this white congregation was asking for was forgiveness, and that this would come from a place of a changed heart. And I, I think that is the seed of this real change. When the hearts are radically changed, the actions will follow. When the hearts are radically changed, the actions will follow. So let's, let's explore this a little bit with, with Jesus. Um, if you think about the words surrounding this issue in our culture right now, they are uh, volatile words, racism, prejudice, systemic, a culture uh, that is inherently racist. These are all words that are uh, charged for all of us. Of course, um, a person can be prejudiced without being a racist. That's true. Um, each of these words has their own different meaning. So uh, prejudice, let's just go through these a little bit. Racism is the belief that one race is inferior to another. It's often rooted in a deep hatred, and it's absolute. And there are no exceptions. All people of a certain race are presumed bad, period. That's what racism is. Prejudice, prejudice is prejudging a person or a group of people based on partial facts. So you, for instance, you believe that people of a particular race are a certain way because of what you've been told or what you've experienced. You have an assumption about their behavior or their beliefs um, based on pre-existing assumptions. That's prejudice. And then if you think about the, the culture of racism, culture is really a sort of a mashup of characteristics that describe a, a large group, in this case, the culture of America, our language, our customs, our music, our religious practices, all of that is mixed into our culture. The things that we believe as a, as a culture, some of those rooted in our constitution, um, these are all uh, inputs into our culture. And the culture is always changing and morphing, but it has some inherent uh, aspects to it, characteristics to it. Um, and, and therefore, a culture can develop a toxin. It's almost like uh, you think about Jesus' parable of the weed in the weeds, where he talks about uh, um, a farmer's field that a thief in the night sneaks into and plants, uh, scatters seeds of weeds amongst the wheat in the, in the field. And then when the farmer wakes up, he sees weeds growing in the midst of his wheat and weeds that he never planted. And he knows someone must have snuck in and done this. And Jesus uh, in his parable says, yeah, don't, don't pull up the weeds in the field. Let, let me do that. Because if you pull them up, you'll pull up the good stuff too. If you think about uh, culture, 
a culture in this case has varieties of weeds planted in it. And one of them is systemic racism in the American culture. It goes way back in our history. And as much as we would like to think that it's over now, a lot of people when Barack Obama was elected thought this, this will be a huge turning point when racism actually got worse um, uh, as uh, during the tenure of Barack Obama as our president. And now, of course, um, it's gotten even much worse than that. And, and in this case, um, the, the way the government has responded to messages of racism and the way that the government has indicated that their belief system around racism has in many ways made this situation only worse. So the, the racism that is part of our culture still finds a willing ear, even, e either uh, overtly in our culture, that, that these messages of white supremacy and racism uh, find a willing ear, or covert, covertly through our collective ignorance about the real uh, situation that we're facing. So culture, um, of these three things, when racism is embedded within a culture, it is very difficult to extract through political means, through governmental means, through laws. Uh, it's not that those things aren't important, but in the end, what's really needed is a radical change of heart, a rebirthing of the heart, as Jesus again said to Nicodemus. So uh, how does that rebirthing of the heart happen? What does that look like? And how, do our, how have our own uh, individual cultures, the, the culture that we create and the story, you could say the story we create in our own self-narrative, where do we land around this issue? Uh, I was thinking about this today. Um, um, I've had, I have obviously uh, friends and uh, loved ones of all different races. And so I don't often think about my own attitude toward race because it's not, it, I, don't, I don't think it's right to say that anyone is blind to race. That's, that's I think, ignorant. It's not telling the truth that, of course, we all recognize the presence of race in our, in our world and in our hearts. What, uh, but uh, we don't often stop to think about the, the personal culture uh, that we have and, and how that frames how we see other people. Um, when, my, when my daughter Emma was very young, we had uh, recently moved into a new neighborhood. And in our neighborhood, we live on a cul-de-sac and the bus stop was on the corner. So it's a short walk to the bus stop. And um, uh, in our neighborhood, in that cul-de-sac, a family from Boston moved in an African-American family from Boston moved in. And up to that point, my daughter, I think was five or six, she hadn't had a lot of contact uh, with, with uh, other kids of different races just because of the orbits of our life, it, it didn't happen. And I never really thought about it until this African-American family moved into our cul-de-sac and they had a daughter who was about the same age as my daughter and they, uh, at the bus stop, they, you know, talked and met each other and they were going to be riding the bus to school together. And um, the, the other child 
the newbie on the cul-de-sac asked my daughter if she'd like to play. And they did a couple of times. And then one day that little girl asked my daughter if she'd like to come into her house. And um, my daughter didn't know what to say. She was suddenly froze and she didn't know why, but she said she couldn't. And uh, she couldn't come into the house. And then she came home after that and told us this. Well, the next day at the bus stop, that, that little girl and her mother were there at the bus stop. And that little girl's mother is very forthright. So we're standing there at the bus stop and, uh, and I'm standing there with my wife as well. And we had realized that what had happened with my daughter. And so we brought it up to, this, to, the, to the mom. We said, I'm really sorry um, that Emma uh, declined that invitation to come into your house. Um, Emma has not had much contact with African-American kids and she was just momentarily didn't know what to do. And we're really sorry that that happened, but we have talked with Emma now about that. And um, uh, we, it's going to be different from, from this point forward. And the mom uh, looked at us and said, well, how did your daughter develop an attitude like that? Which I didn't see coming. Um, and I thought, well, she didn't develop it because of our parenting, for sure. It's simply because it was new for her. Any situation that was new for her, she might have balked at. Um, and then the woman said, well, why was it new for her? And then I felt like what we were supposed to say is that we had been proactive in exposing her, my daughter, to other cultures and other other races, and that we hadn't, and that um, we had screwed up as parents. But in my mind, I thought, we haven't screwed up as parents. We, we have lots of um, multiracial friends, um, and it's, it's just that she's a five-year-old, six-year-old girl who froze in the moment. But I've had to think about that for a long time now and wonder about it in myself. Um, now, what responsibility did my wife and I have to better prepare my daughter, Emma, to um, not freeze as she did? We never saw that coming. We had no idea that she had that catch in her. I, I, would, I would have been floored to, to um, think that that's what would happen. I just never saw it coming. Um, but I've never forgotten it because, of course, our friends in the cul-de-sac um, would be upset when they discovered why Emma didn't feel comfortable going into their house. Of course, they would be upset. And of course, they would wonder, well, what's happening in your house anyway? So um, uh, that, that sparked something in me a long time ago to think through my own history and experiences and uh, not, not so much uh, in the sense that I have prejudices or things like that. It's simply how much experience do I have with uh, others who are quite different than me? How much experience do I have enough to, to have developed empathy and filters and things like that? Do I? So it raised questions for me, that whole interchange. And obviously we went on to, we, the, that family still lives in our cul-de-sac. We see them, we interact with them. Um, my older daughter, Lucy, um, was a, a tutor um, for, their, for their son who had a learning disability. So 
um, we've we've gone on from there. But that that encounter has never left me. Now, of course, Jesus. We go back. Let's loop back to him here. He was masterful at building bridges to people, regardless of their race or social status. I mean, he seemed to gleefully enjoy breaking down existing cultural barriers with people he wasn't supposed to be talking to, people he wasn't supposed to be helping, people he wasn't supposed to be promoting, people he wasn't supposed to be healing. He, he bashed left and right like a, uh, like a bull in the proverbial china shop, bashed his horns left and right into existing cultural and social mores. He smashed them all the time. He created cultural discomfort all the time, uh, even with his own disciples who couldn't understand his behavior and why he didn't simply neglect or write off certain races of people. His, his disciples had been schooled and, it, and it embedded in a culture of racism themselves, and they were shocked by some of the things that Jesus said and did. Um, we're just going to explore more in depth one of those examples. This time that Jesus deliberately took an out-of-the-way detour into Samaria, into the very country where um, those people lived who were systemically treated with racist attitude, the Samaritans. He purposefully takes a detour into Samaria so that he could guarantee interactions with Samaritans so that his disciples could once again experience what Jesus' heart is toward those who are different than them, toward those people that they had written off in a, in a, a systemic way. So he has this amazing encounter with this woman he's not supposed to like. So here's what we're going to do, just very simple. Uh, this, of course, is the story of the Samaritan woman that he meets at the well. So I thought we could just explore this story in little chunks, and we're going to ask one question after each chunk. And the, the question is, what do we know for sure about Jesus, simply based on how he interacted with a hated person of a different race? What do we know for sure about him if we just pay attention to how he interacted with this hated person of a different race? So we're going to take this story in three chunks. The first one will be uh, in verses 4 through 10 of John chapter 4, verses 4 through 10 of John chapter 4. So let's launch into that. So Jesus went through Samaria on the way, and on, a, on his way, he was returning to Galilee. That's where he was going. So he goes out of his way to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. It's not a direct route. So he goes, goes into Samaria on purpose, as we said, on his way back to Galilee. So eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time, because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. So let's stop there. That's verses 4 through 10. What do we know for sure about Jesus based on the way he's interacting 
with this woman he's supposed to hate. And it, this must have been incredibly uncomfortable for his disciples to move through this sort of quote unquote enemy territory surrounded by people that they looked down upon and treated like wallpaper, like they were just background. Um, and Jesus is traveling with, he knows, uh, people who have very strong feelings about this. And here he ventures into Samaria to guarantee contact with the very people his disciples um, have feelings of hatred toward. And so uh, he sits down at noontime. He directs his disciples to go into town and buy some food, guaranteeing that he'd be alone. So clearly he wants to clear the deck a little bit for, the, for an encounter he's about to have. He doesn't want his disciples sort of intruding into or messing up this encounter he has with this woman. And the, the woman comes at about noontime because she's, as we'll soon find out, has a sketchy pass. So she doesn't go at the normal time to draw water. She wants to be alone as well. So Jesus figures out a way to get a one-on-one -on -one with this woman. And on every level, this is something he's not supposed to do. She's a Samaritan, he's a Jew. She's a woman, he's a man. They're alone, no one else around. In every way, this was breaking cultural mores. I go back to thinking about that um, short Instagram video I had you listen to at the start. Um, what's part of what's so moving about this is uh, just the sight of what happens in that scene. This entire uh, sea of white people kneeling in front of a standing congregation, an African-American congregation, is a profound sight in and of itself. Um, and it breaks many of the expectations we have, especially what we see on TV right now. It goes counter to those expectations and therefore it rivets our attention. And that's exactly what's happening here with this Samaritan woman. In every way, it's riveting what he's doing. And the woman, it says she's surprised. She was probably shocked is more closely to, close to the, the uh, depth of emotion of that word. She was shocked. And she has to remind Jesus, hey, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? You're supposed to hate me. You're not even supposed to have anything to do with me. What are you doing? There's a scene in that uh, Instagram video at the end when the pastor begins to specifically ask forgiveness, not just for individual acts of racism, but systemic racism. And it, uh, the person that it appears to be, the, the pastor of the African-American church, he's, he's standing right there in the front. Um, he just lifts his eyes to heaven and he starts to cry. Um, because it, think about this from his perspective, um, what's being said right now and how radical it is to him. And similarly, this woman says, what are you doing, essentially? Why are you doing this? The, it, you shouldn't be doing this. This is so out of character. And then Jesus' response is, if you only knew the gift God has for you. What he's, what his, the first words out of his mouth, besides, please give me a drink, which, by the way, please give me a drink, puts himself in a vulnerable situation. He's asking someone else for help, asking her to do something on his behalf. And he's saying it not as an order, but as a request. Um, it's, it's a very humble request that he gives to this woman. So he starts off by making himself vulnerable, just as those 
men in the Instagram video start off by kneeling. It's the very first thing they do. So Jesus says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to. So the second words out of his mouth are, I have a gift for you. <laughs> I've come to give, not to receive. I've come to offer you uh, a blessing, not demand something from you. I've come to give. So what do we know about his heart? We know that his heart um, despises these endemic cultural practices that diminish people into less than they are. He despises it. And to do something about it, he, he drags his, his, his disciples into the very kind of situation that will, that will surface this issue, that will make it unavoidable that they have to deal with this issue. And they go, they're going to see him deal with this issue. The, him who they uh, are following because they revere his teaching, they're going to see him do things that they never thought possible. And so Jesus makes sure that this happens. And he starts off by, by being vulnerable himself first. And then he follows that up with his intent to bless these people. Let's go to the next chunk here. I'm going to read verses 11 through 17 now and think about the same question again. What do we know for sure about Jesus just based only on this little chunk? Um, so here we pick it up again. The woman is speaking. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and animals enjoy? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never have to be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Well, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Well, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And we're going to stop right there. I don't have a husband, the woman replies. So let's uh, go back again and consider this story. Uh, the woman starts out by pushing back. When Jesus says, if you knew who you were speaking to, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. He's offering her something, but, you know, she's not just going to completely change the way she thinks about the interaction she's had with Jews her whole life. She's not going to suddenly think, well, this guy has my best interests at heart. Uh, just because it's Jesus doesn't mean that she's not on guard because of this, because of a long, long history of being diminished by the other. This is good for those of us who are, who are white Americans to remember that if you think that the first time that you present yourself in a humble, giving way, that, that that will flip the switch and change everything, well, it won't. Because there's a long history that has to be overcome. And this woman um, not only uh, isn't immediately receptive to what Jesus is offering her, but she also clearly pushes back. Where would you get this living water? Now, how, how do I know? Are you just jerking me around again? I've been jerked around by Jews my whole life. Are you just, are you playing with me? What are you doing? She's trying to figure out his motivation because she doesn't trust his motivation and she doesn't trust it for good reason. And she goes on to say, and besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? 
how can you offer better water than he and his sons and animals enjoy? She's like, oh, you're, you're saying you can give me something better than this water? Well, who are you anyway? What an arrogant offer you're giving me. Why do you think that whatever you've got is better than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well in the first place? Why do you think you're better than him? Again, she's sort of taking umbrage at what he innocently, humbly offered to her. But notice Jesus' response to this. Instead of taking up offense, instead of saying, hey, you don't know who you're talking to here. You better shape up. You're talking to the Messiah. He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, he gently reapproaches the woman and says, well, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. I want, he's basically saying, I want to give you the kind of water that will refresh in your soul for eternity. I want to give you a good gift, and I can give it. He, he doesn't stop to assess his, the offense that's been thrown his way. He doesn't stop to lick his own wounds. He doesn't stop to demand fairness. He just persists in his giving. He recognizes that this woman has so much pain built up inside in her that she's going to have to come to receive what he has to give in a slow way. And Jesus recognizes that and doesn't pressure her in any way to get with the program. Instead, um, she, when she asks for the water, he does something that's intended to open her heart to him. He says, go and get your husband. And the woman looks at him and admits, well, I don't have a husband. So here we pick it up again. Uh, with uh, the last part of uh, verse 17, all the way to verse 26, John 4. Jesus says, well, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now, so you certainly spoke the truth. Well, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at, at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And actually, in my Jesus-centered Bible, that little sentence ends with an exclamation point. So let me say it again. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. That's more like what he said. So here, let's take this last chunk and examine it. What do we know for sure about Jesus' heart, just based on this little chunk? When the woman says she doesn't have a husband, Jesus takes a huge risk with her. He says, I know you don't. Uh, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. He's, what he's saying is, I know stuff about you. I, uh, you're not a stranger to me. I get, I get what your life is like. I know something about you. And what he's really communicating is, I know this about you, and I'm still here. 
I'm not leaving because of what I know about you. I'm staying because of what I know about you. And the woman then is so uncomfortable, she doesn't know what to do, I think. She changes the subject. <laughs> she says, uh, why is it that you Jews worship in Jerusalem as the only place of worship, and we Samaritans claim it's here? Again, she's jutting her chin out, throwing something out to him. She's, she's taken off guard by what he says to her. So she, she, again, she's so used to defending herself, protecting herself. She changes the subject and says, well, you Jews, why do you think the only place to worship is Jerusalem? We claim it's here. She's trying to figure out whose side are you on here? Are you for real? Let me surface your real feelings. And instead, Jesus says something she didn't expect. He says, you know what? It's not going to matter whether you worship in a place that has been approved by the cultural, uh, the, the endemic cultural prejudices that both Samaritans and Jews have. It, it's not going to matter who wins that argument soon, because that's not what the Father's interested in anyway. He doesn't care where you worship. All he cares about is the status of your heart. He says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What he means by that is what I, what I explained at the beginning, what a pig is. A pig gives all their heart to something. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. Real worship happens when you give all of yourself. And, when you, and, and the second part of that, in spirit, all of myself, and in truth, meaning what you are worshiping, you know. You know the truth of who you are worshiping instead of doing it culturally, or because your family has always done it. You're worshiping because you have embraced the truth about the one you're worshiping. So Jesus is saying, place is not going to matter. It's just ridiculous even to even think about what's the true place of worship. Really, the only thing required for real worship is the status of your heart. Are you all in? And why are you all in? Is it because you know the truth? And the woman says, well, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain all this to us. And then Jesus outs himself and says, hey, I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. And this then upends the woman. I mean, it literally transforms her life in that moment. Up until that moment, she's pushing back. She's, she's defending herself for good reason. She's protecting herself for good reason. She's, she's countering everything that Jesus is trying to offer her. And then she tries to change the subject and make it into a us versus them conversation, and he won't have any of it. He's essentially inviting her to worship God no matter where she is. Will you give your heart in truth to the God who loves you, to the God who wants to give you living water, to the one who wants that water to spring up to give you life throughout your life? And then he just as explicit, I am the Messiah. And suddenly her eyes are opened and she rushes back to her town to tell everyone about the man who told her everything she ever did. And she wonders out loud, could he be possibly the, be the Messiah and all of the people from the village of Sychar come out to see Jesus? All of the village of Sychar comes out to see Jesus. Again, Jesus is strategic here. He does something with an individual that then spreads to the, her entire village. And then imagine the disciples. Now the disciples are back with him, and the entire village comes out to meet with them. And Jesus, the implication is, Jesus um, 
engages these, these people in an intimate, respectful, humble way, just as he's done everyone else. And his disciples must be floored. I can't believe what he's doing. But Jesus is doing it, and it plants in them something that will never go away in them. They saw Jesus respond in these ways to the people they're supposed to hate. And they have his example to live within them the rest of their lives. Jesus is passionate and he's shrewd. He's humble and he's inviting. He, he refuses to take up offense um, in the midst of this situation. Instead, his attitude is, how can I give? How can I give? How can I give? I think these are all such important things for us to remember as we now enter into another season of grappling with a cultural evil. What will we do? Well, if we, are, if we smell like Jesus, we'll do the things he did. And we'll do the things he did, not because we're trying harder, but because we respond to the invitation of the Holy Spirit within us to live this way, to allow Jesus to live through us toward others. And that's what I see some in that, in that opening video, that Instagram video, a congregation of people who are saying, I want to invite Jesus to live through me. And the first step in that is humility and a, and a raw, authentic offer of, uh, or pleading for forgiveness for uh, not just the things that the people kneeling there have done in the past, but as proxies for all of the racism that has been experienced from African-Americans, uh, toward African-Americans from, from white people. So, um, so there we have it. Uh, the, this encounter, I think, um, is something to go back to over and over again in the midst of this situation, to sort of let the heart of Jesus infect us as we move out into our relationships and to let the spirit of Jesus propel us into our response with this. Um, the question is, will you invite that kind of influence in your life? Will you invite Jesus and the spirit of Jesus to guide and direct not only what you say, but what you do? Let's just close here in prayer for a second. Jesus, we are so grateful for the example you set and for, the, and for how you showed us your heart and that you are passionate about all people recognizing the differences in people, but not using them to categorize, judge, or dole out your blessings um, in differing amounts because of it. Instead, your passion is for all people. It's not about where we worship. It's not about our skin color, uh, is another way to say that. It's about what's in the heart. That's all that you care about. We are so grateful. You are beauty in every way. Will you please use what is ugly now in our culture and bring about something beautiful? And Lord Jesus, we want to be a part of it. So please show us how. In your name, amen. All right, gang. Um, I, I've mentioned before uh, uh, to the pigs, the folks on the pigs page, that I'm going to explore ways that this podcast continue even after I have left groups. So 
I'll let you know more about that when I know, but my hope and desire is to uh, take the Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus podcast with me. We'll find out if uh, that's a possibility. I will let you know one way or another as we move along here, but I probably have two or three podcasts left to record um, prior to me actually leaving groups. So, so uh, for the next few episodes, I'll try to keep you updated on what's happening and, um, and what shifts we're going to make. But I, I just want to say at the outset here, thank you, thank you, thank you. Some of you have been listening from the beginning of the, our very first season, and we're in season five now. So I feel like we've been journeying together for a long time. And I so appreciate and value who you are and how you have enriched and challenged my life. I'd like that to keep going. So I'm working to find a way to do that and I'll let you know as we go along. But until then, I will see you again next week.